happy Saturday. It's October 14th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. Michael, did you ever hear about Christmas in July? It used to be a thing. I did, but I'm still waiting for Halloween in October. What's going on? We have Halloween in October. We have Christmas in October. We have Hanukkah in October. We have actually every single holiday in October because we have got the story of all stories in Airmail this week. We do. Loyal listeners know there's almost nothing we don't love more here at Morning Meeting than a good story about a grifter. And this week, our airmail colleague, George Pendle, joins us to share a whopper of a tale. It's one that Graydon Carter, our co-editor, says is unlike anything he's seen in his 50 years as a journalist. It's a story we call The Grift, The Prince, and The Twist. And it involves shifting identities and a shocking twist, and it needs to be heard to be believed. Then, you all saw the news this week, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says he is running for president as an independent. But, as Jeffrey Tubin will reveal, the key to understanding Kennedy's campaign can be found in a nearly 50-year-old twisted murder case. Ashley, where would you like to begin? Is there anything we like more than a con person? Two con people. But it's also about the world that we live in and the conceit of deceit that is woven through so many of our interactions, both online and in the world at large. It is an incredible story coming to you out of London. And our esteemed colleague and friend, George Pendle, is here to tell us all about it. George is an editor at large for Airmail, a wonderful writer, and he has lost many sleepless nights over this story. But I have to say it's kind of worth it. Sorry. Great read. Thanks, George. Sorry, George's family. Welcome, George Pendle. Hello. George, what a long month you've had. It has been one of the more unusual ones during my time at Airmail, I must have. Well, you know we love a con woman, we love a con man, and in this story we have both of them. And you and the writer that you worked with on this are really at the center of this. So, first of all, how did the story of Liza Johanna Holgerson and her acquaintance-slash-boyfriend-slash-partner-in-arms, Amar Singh, cross your desk? Well, it all came from our writer, Hannah Gureshi, who's based in London. Her husband was a, or is, or possibly may no longer be, a friend of a chap called Amar Singh, or better known as Prince Amar Singh. Amar Singh is a an art collector. He's a philanthropist. He's been written about by a number of different publications, Vanity Fair, Forbes, and the Daily Mail, which all praise his work for women's rights and for LGBTQ kind of communities. And so he approached Anna's husband, and Hannah's husband then put him in touch with Hannah about a story of a relationship he had been having with this woman called Liza Johanna Holgerson. Now, Amar Singh is about 30 years old, 34 years old. Liza Johanna is about 20 years old, 23 years old. And he proceeded to tell Hannah the most extraordinary story she had ever heard. He said that he had been going out with this young Swedish woman, Liza Johanna, and they had met online and they had met up in London and it had sparked wonderfully. She thought that Amar's philanthropical work with women's rights and gay rights was fascinating and Amar was flattered and, of course, pleased that somebody was speaking to him about his work. So he proceeded to tell our writer, Hannah, all about what then happened. Eliza had presented herself to him as being the heir to the Swedish Wallander fortune, which is a giant industrialist family in Sweden. And she had said that she was studying at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York and the two of them just seemed to be having a great time together. But it slowly turned out through various kind of clues and various strange events that maybe Eliza Johanna wasn't everything she said she was. And Amar started noticing certain things. He noticed that every time he tried to pick up her phone when it was ringing and give it to her, she would kind of freak out that she'd kind of disappear for long periods and wouldn't really explain where she had been. But she was a very attractive woman. She was a 23-year-old girl 
And she was obviously besotted with him and his work. And in fact, she was so besotted that she kind of wanted to be part of the work. And she started asking him whether possibly she could start donating to some of his charities. Now, there was a wrinkle in this. She said that her family, she was having issues with her family. Her father had somehow frozen her inheritance. So she couldn't quite donate to his charity right away. But maybe Amar could lend her some money that she could then give to various philanthropical funds. And Amar didn't really think anything much of this. He knew that rich people have weird family relations. And, but he thought it would be better. It would be a chance for her to kind of have a rapprochement with her family rather than borrowing money from him. Anyway, this relationship carried on for most of the summer until finally it broke. And it broke it in the most surprising of ways. They had been going to like the Serpentine Summer Gala together. They had been going to the most fashionable restaurants in London together. And then it turned out perhaps Liza Johanna was seeing somebody else at the same time as him. And that's when things started to snowball. Amar told us that he had realized that she wasn't just seeing one other person. She was seeing two or three other people. And they were all wealthy men like himself. And it seemed like eventually he got in touch with them and he worked out that she had been taking them for a ride along with him. Now, this was quite an extraordinary turn of events. And eventually he confronted her. Liza Johanna with this. And she omitted everything. She omitted everything she told him had been false, that she wasn't at the Fashion Institute of Technology, that she wasn't the heir to the Wallander family fortune. But she came clean in what Amar thought was a kind of an attempt to kind of save the relationship. But as far as Amar could tell, she was just a 23-year-old Swedish girl from a middle-class town who wanted to live the high life with him. So George, at this point, she sounds sort of like an Anna Delvey character. Is that a fair comparison? Very much. She is the quintessential Anna Delvey character. In fact, one of her other boyfriends who we spoke to said that he and her had actually watched Anna Delvey on TV, one of the TV shows made about her, a film made about her. And she had praised Anna Delvey as being kind of this great figure, this role model. And the boyfriend was a little confused by this. He said, but she's a con woman. And she said, no, she's great. She's fantastic. And he didn't quite understand until the relationship was over. Well, all's fair in love and activism. But as bizarre as this sounds, I mean, it's not completely far-fetched given our other protagonist in this story, Amar. He was much more of a known quantity. What did we know about him before? Well, we knew he was this great human rights activist or women's rights activist in particular. He had started a gallery in London that was just showcasing female art. We knew that he had promised all sorts of paintings by female artists to museums. We knew that he had obviously come, he said, from this great Indian royal family, and that's where he got his wealth. And we knew that he was you know, being written about by numerous other publications, all praising his philanthropical work. And there was something even for us. It was a We loved it. We loved the idea that an Indian prince with progressive views was helping women and LGBTQ people. So we thought this was an incredible story about how even the wealthiest and the most well-connected amongst us can be fooled or taken for a ride by, by, by con women or con men. But George, his story also started to unravel in spectacular fashion. What were some of the first signs that this was not as it appeared? Well, the first real sign was that in all this time, Hannah had been interviewing him. We had yet to speak to Liza. Now, we had spoken to a number of different boyfriends who had all confirmed what Amar had told us about how Liza had operate, that she was this kind of devious, but very clever, very smart character. But we hadn't spoken to her. And of course, we needed to try and get a quote from her just to see what she would say to the accusations that Ma had kind of thrown at her. The phone number which Amar had given us didn't work for her. And the email he gave for us didn't work for her either. She had shut down, it seemed, all her social media accounts. And so we were really in a bit of a fix. We just only had one side of the story. And publication date was approaching. And I discussed it with Hannah. We said, OK, look, as a Hail Mary shot, let's try and get in touch with her parents, who we 
did know who they were. And we said, let's try and get a message to her through her parents, through their LinkedIn social profile. So we sent out a message to them. And I really wasn't expecting much. I certainly wasn't expecting Liza, this seemingly hardened con woman, to kind of get in touch with her. But pretty much two hours after we sent the LinkedIn message, Hannah got a response. Liza wanted to talk. And she wanted to tell us things which may or may not have exactly chimed with the Mars account of things. Now, Liza Johanna didn't want to talk on the record, so we can't really discuss what she said. But what she did send after we spoke to her on the record were three recordings of Amar speaking to her on the phone. And these recordings were shocking because they completely belied what Amar had told us about his entire life, about his entire character. He had showed himself to be this great women's rights activist. But on these recordings, which Liza had secretly recorded while they were on the phone together, Amar abuses her, threatens her in the most grotesque and appalling language. I mean, it's really a disgusting thing to hear. And suddenly the story took on a whole new focus. We suddenly realized, wait, hold on. Amar had put himself forward as being this great champion of female rights. And now he's like saying this to his ex-lover. And perhaps what shocked me most, well, I mean, probably not most, but just as much, was that on the recording, he said he would turn this article into an assassination. And I suddenly realized the article he was talking about was the very one I was editing. What he was going to do was try and spin the story against Liza Johanna. So it would in some way blacken her name even more than it already was. And he was going to kind of force her to watch him do it. And so then we suddenly realized, oh my God, if Amal is saying these things to Eliza Johanna, maybe everything he's told us is false too. Maybe he gave us a fake telephone number so we couldn't contact her. And that's when began the strange series of twists that the story then kind of dissolved into. George, you've been an editor for a long time. Have you ever encountered a story that's exploded in the way that this one did? Never. I mean, as I write in the piece there, stories come to you in a number of different ways. Some are kind of wrapped up neatly and tightly and you can just put them straight into your publication. Some are kind of a little tatty and you have to kind of cut them and retie them and make them a little neater before you put them in. But this one came to me looking fantastic. It looked like a great story of kind of the dating malls of the 21st century. But as soon as we touched it, it exploded in my hand and I suddenly realized this wasn't a story about dating. This was a story about revenge, about somebody creating a character that was completely false and living this kind of brutal other life beneath it. I mean, George, in some ways too, it's very much a made for 2023 story. I mean, it sort of encapsulates all the issues that we're talking about. Bakery on the internet, delusion, delusions of grandeur. How do you sort of locate a story like this in the overall context of journalism? Like, what does it mean that these are the kinds of things that not only that we're reporting on, but also that we're finding throughout the course of our reporting? Well, that's a very good point. Well, this kind of story kind of makes you question pretty much everything you know. When somebody brings you a story, you generally expect that story to be true. You generally expect that person to be wanting to push forward something which is based in truth. But what we suddenly realized was that we had no basis for the story anymore. We, and then we had to question everything. What we realized was that when you're faced with a story like this, is we had to go deep, not only into Liza Johanna's life, but also into Amar's life. And we had to dig and dig and dig and ask as many questions as we possibly could of anybody who had met them. And so we were really kind of rebuilding it from the ground up. And this story, it's a wonderful example of where we are at the moment in terms of communication, in terms of dating, in terms of 21st century mores. Who do we meet online? Who are they? How do we know who they are? Do we want them to to be something they aren't. And all this is mediated by the buttons we press. We can end a relationship just by blocking somebody. We never have to run into them again. If we somehow mute them online, that seems to be the end of it. But what we realized was that perhaps that isn't the end of it. Perhaps there are all 
these threads that leak out that we can pull on and we can find the real truth behind the kind of fake truth that people put online. And George, there was a deeper motivation behind all this behavior, right? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about something called the thirst for fiction, right? Well, after we found out that Amar was maybe who he wasn't, we obviously approached him and we tried to get him to comment on the recordings. Now, I believe that he was as shocked as we had been that we had received these recordings because they were obviously a blow to his reputation as a philanthropist, as a women's rights activist. And so immediately he tried to shut the whole story down, the story which he had brought us. He tried to shut it down. And he did this first by trying to bribe our writer, Hannah. Then he did it by trying to get everybody who we had spoken to, to retract what they had said, to say they weren't cooperating with us anymore. And when he realized that he couldn't do any of this, when he realized that he had said to us all these things on the record and he couldn't withdraw it, he tried his most audacious kind of attempt to quash the story. And he said that what this project was, what he had told us, everything about it was research for a film project he had been researching. It was research for a film he had named Thirst for Fiction, which was about how easy it is to fool unscrupulous journalists into printing a story that they hadn't properly researched. Now, when he told me this, I was kind of taken aback by the audacity of this. But he was absolutely committed to this story. The idea that everything he had said about Liza Johanna, all the evidence he had shared about her, all the other people who had spoken to us about Liza Johanna as being a con woman had all been part of this thirst for fiction film research that he had invented. And in fact, what was shocking was that when we spoke to Liza about this, we eventually contacted her again and said, are you part of this film project? She seemed to agree with Amar. We wondered what was going on here. Was she still being threatened as she had been on the audio recordings we heard? Was there some bribery going on? We couldn't really get to the bottom of it until we had one final, final revelation, which I think I should probably leave for the readers of the piece to see. Well, George, we realize you've lost an awful lot of sleep over this, but it's an absolutely fascinating read, full of some great reporting and also great editing and also great insight into the practice of journalism and what a good journalist looks like. So thank you so much for showing us all of it. Thank you. George, I think the last thing I'd say is it's like Kaiser Soze could have written this story for you. <laughs> Indeed, he's out there. It's an f- unbelievable piece of writing and encourage you all to read it in this week's issue of Air Milk. So George, we look forward to speaking with you again soon. In the meantime, get some rest. Please go to a spa. Thank you for having me. I think I'll do just that. Thank you, George. Riveting, Michael. Don't you kind of want to like sit down and read this story and then go out for champagne with Anna Delvey? That was what I was thinking when I was going through it. I'd like to have Anna Delvey tell me what she would do differently or if she thinks it's a good con or a, a con that can be improved by something someone else is not thinking of. Anna Delvey would be kind of impressed by this because it's a two-person con. It doesn't just involve her. It required an incredible amount of coordination and cooperation among these two people who are, let's face it, perhaps not the most reliable characters in the world. Anyway, Anna, if you have thoughts on this, call them in. We're ready. You know how to reach us. Well, speaking of reliable characters, we've got Jeffrey Tubin this week to tell us about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and what might be how to understand his recent announcement that he's going to run for president as an independent. Ugh, I'm so sick of RFK Jr., but this guy just keeps coming back with more insidiousness. But we have to talk about it because, of course, he is running for president. And as we learned in 2016, you just never know what can happen. Jeffrey Tubin is a longtime legal correspondent for CNN, the author of many books, including most recently, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the rise of right-wing extremism. Welcome, Jeffrey Tubin. So 
Jeffrey, I mean, you've got a story this week where you basically say the blueprint to understanding Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s frame of mind and how he's going to be running this campaign. Actually, you've got a good look into that after covering a trial that he was involved in and a book he wrote, right? Exactly. And this relates to a murder that took place in 1975. I mean, the scale of years and the length of time of this saga is really extraordinary. In 1975, a 15-year-old girl named Martha Moxley was killed near her home in Greenwich, Connecticut. And the Skakel family lived next door. There were seven children in the Skakel family, including Michael Skakel, who was also 15 years old. The murder went unsolved for many years. And I explained some of why that is in the piece. But in 2002, Michael Skakel was charged with the murder of Martha Moxley. Michael Skakel is the first cousin of Robert F. Kennedy and all of Robert Kennedy Sr.'s children, obviously. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s mother, Ethel Skakel Kennedy, was the sister of Rushton Skakel, who was the father of Michael Skakel, the defendant in this case. So after many years, Michael Skakel is charged with murder. He's convicted in 2002. And in 2016, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. writes a book his first best-selling book called Framed, ostensibly or allegedly intending to exculpate Michael Skakel and say that he was in fact not guilty and unfairly convicted of the murder of Martha Moxley. And my piece in Airmail this week is about that book and how Robert Kennedy distorted the evidence that clearly, in my view, showed that Michael Skakel was guilty and established a template, in my opinion, for how Robert Kennedy has distorted evidence about other subjects, most notably and most famously vaccines. But the point of my piece in Airmail is how his attempt to exonerate his cousin formed the model for the distortions that he has based his political career on. I mean, I guess we live in an age where, like, I guess he's like Trump in a way. He thinks he won't get caught, right? And also, um, I think a fundamentally conspiratorial mindset that everyone who was working at his cross purposes is actually involved in a grand secret conspiracy to undo the forces of good. That's a consistent theme in Kennedy's work. One of the things that was astonishing to me, I guess I hadn't realized it, is the degree to which he has demonized Anthony Fauci, the person who was essentially the COVID czar in the United States. He doesn't say that, look, Anthony Fauci was dealing in a difficult situation and made mistakes. No, his hypothesis is that Anthony Fauci is an evil man. Same thing with the prosecutors in the Michael Skakel case. Not that they were trying to solve a terrible murder of a child and made some mistakes in his view. No, they were evil people trying to frame an innocent man intentional. That sort of angry conspiratorial mindset, I think, is what you see as a through line in his career. And he's willing to distort evidence, especially on subjects, and this I found particularly interesting, on subjects that people in the general public just don't have the expertise to analyze. I mean, the Moxley murder is actually a somewhat complicated case, and lots of years passed. The evidence is not totally straightforward. It's a circumstantial evidence case. And so he cherry picks and makes complicated a case for his cousin's innocence, and where most people who don't have access to the evidence can't refute it. 
Same thing with COVID. To cherry pick studies and scientific knowledge, alleged knowledge that most people don't know enough in terms of epidemiology to refute, it's the same MO in both situations. Jeffrey, it's so tempting to want to ignore this guy or just brush him off as a total lunatic because so much of what he says is completely nonsensical. But I think as we learned in 2016 and many other times in history, these people can be extremely dangerous. I mean, we've seen members of the Kennedy family come out yesterday and denounce his candidacy as the third party candidate. How much of a risk is he really? Well, that's a great dilemma for journalists, frankly. What do you do with someone who's clearly wrong on many different levels? And this was something with Trump that came up all the time. And when Trump would lie or exaggerate and people would say, well, why are you covering? Why are you covering all the tweets? I mean, it's just calling attention to him. And it's a similar issue with RFK Jr. Shouldn't we just ignore it? And I think the answer is no. Just this week, he announced he's running as a third party candidate. He's no longer running for the Democratic nomination. And there is a hot debate in political circles going on now that if he gets on the ballot in the contested states, who does he hurt more? Does he hurt Trump if Trump is the nominee or does he hurt Biden? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I've heard the arguments on both sides. But when you think about someone with that name and that degree of fame running for president of the United States on ballots all across the country, if not on all of them, that's a very serious thing. He's going to get a lot of votes. I don't know if he's going to get enough votes to swing the balance, but he is a serious candidate, even if he's not going to win. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to look at him and evaluate him as the public figure and presidential candidate that he is. Despite what some of us may think of what the Kennedy mystique is or the Kennedy name, or does it still have any, there's some people who still think that's a trusted name. It's a trusted brand. And a guy with that name saying the things he's saying, it's not someone who's not seen as in the public arena, whose ideas are tested. They say, okay, well, if he thinks that, it gives an extra degree of credibility to it. Think about this. Who have the third party candidates been in recent American history? They have been fundamental obscure figures. Jill Stein. Ralph Nader. But Ralph Nader, I would submit that Ralph Nader is not as well known a name as Robert F. Kennedy. He swung the election. Ross Perot, not as well known a name. Ross Perot, a serious candidate in the 90s twice. But look what happened in 2000 in Florida. Ralph Nader got 95,000 votes and Al Gore lost by 537. These third party candidates can have a big impact. And what Robert F. Kennedy has done, this is not in the realm, I think, of sort of good faith disagreement over whether you should raise taxes or lower taxes. This is outright distortions of a murder case that led to his outright distortions of issues of public health that are enormously consequential. And that's why I think this is more than, that's why I think we shouldn't ignore it. Although, Ashley, I am sympathetic to the sort of eye-rolling view. Can't we just ignore this guy? Jeffrey, he's so egregious. I'm sorry. Like, there are so many crazy things happening in the world that this guy seems like so out to lunch that it is tempting, right? But I think what your reporting does so brilliantly is remind us exactly why he's dangerous and how this precedent has been set and who knows what he's going to apply this insane thinking to next. And if I could just complete the loop on on my story in airmail, it's not just that he says that his cousin Michael Skakel is innocent. He tries to frame these two innocent black guys in such an unfair way. And he identifies them by name. And I go through in the story a little bit of what that meant for them to be accused of murder by someone with a name as famous as RFK Jr. It is just so appalling 
appallingly unfair, and not least because the Kennedy family has a very distinguished and honorable history on the issue of civil rights and close relationships with the African-American community, which he's clearly trying to draw on in his presidential candidacy. Yet at the same time, he tried to frame these two black guys for something that they didn't do. So I think that makes the story, I think, even more relevant to the campaign. Yeah, to me, I think it's when you talk about why should we cover it, it's a little bit of when people look back at Trump's comments about the Central Park Five, you could see much of the playbook being written right there, which I think is some of what you're talking about here with this Skakel murder case. You can see his playbook and how he thinks about things. Absolutely. When I was working at CNN, we would have these debates all the time about, oh, he said journalists should be arrested for treason. Oh, well, that's just Trump being Trump or the Mexicans who are crossing the border are all rapists. Why do we have to engage on that? But I think the lesson is that you have to refute lies when you see them. And is Robert Kennedy going to get get elected president? No, but people were confident that Trump wasn't going to get elected either. I think Kennedy is a less serious candidate than Trump, but he could certainly have a major impact on the outcome. I'm so tempted to call him the Connor Roy of the 2024 election cycle, but I think that's an insult to Connor Roy. It's awfully similar. I think Connor was similarly narcissistic and had similar access to wealth, except Connor Roy is a hell of a lot less well-known name, even in that fictional universe of succession, than Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is in the real world of today. Connor Roy wasn't evil. He was just dumb. That's true. Although when you're running for president, (laughs) if you're just dumb, you can be pretty evil. And to be honest, I'm not sure I know the full Connor Roy platform for this candidacy in a way that I'm more familiar with Kennedy. All right. Well, you've got your projects for the weekend then, Jeffrey. Get on it. Jeffrey Tubin, thank you so much. Great story. And Thank you for remembering all of this about this trial that you covered over 20 years ago. It's really important work. Thank you again. All right, Ashley, Michael, thank you. All right, Michael, we've got a lot of odd characters this week. I'm craving normalcy. I think I might have to go watch Bridget Jones again. Oh, is that your safe place? Bridget Jones, Notting Hill, Love Actually. Yes, you know me. If it's a Hugh Grant movie, it's my happy place. There's worse places. Michael, okay, it's the weekend. We got to get out of the studio. Do you have anything at all you can recommend to us to pass the long hours? I do. It's new on Apple TV and it's called Lessons in Chemistry. A lot of you may have read the novel it's based on, which was a huge bestseller written by... Bonnie Garmus. This is a fictional story of a woman who's a chemist in 1950s America, and she gets fired from the job she's working in in a lab, mostly because she can't tolerate the constant chauvinism. But then she reinvents herself on a cooking show. I've only seen the first episode, but I think Brie Larson, who won an Oscar for her performance in the movie Room, is great as a smart, determined woman making a new path for herself. It's also set in the 1950s, as I mentioned, so it's got this style look that's really cool to look at. It's kind of Julia Child meets Mad Men. It's called Lessons in Chemistry, and it is on Apple TV. And you, Ashley, what do you have to recommend? I'm so sorry. I have to lighten this up, Michael. It's been a heavy day. Have you been watching Beckham on Netflix? No, I have not been to Beckham yet. Tell us all about it. It's pretty great. I mean, look, I realized when I was watching this, I've never actually heard either of them speak, which sounds totally improbable, but it's facts. Like their images are burned in my memory, and I know so many ridiculous tabloid facts about them. 
them, but in fact, I found them kind of charming. I liked watching this and I didn't really understand how they're really at the center of things here in the UK until I lived here. And everybody has a view on them. It's very interesting. They're just so much more than Posh Spice and The Soccer Star. Anyway, I really recommend it. Beckham on Netflix, kind of cute, cozy and charming. And then on a slightly more highbrow note, I saw really an incredible play called The Effect at the National Theatre here in London on Saturday night. It's written by Lucy Preble, who's one of the main writers on Succession. And she's really an incredible playwright. This is a 10-year-old play, but it's all about a young man and a young woman in a clinical trial of an antidepressant. And they fall in love and they're trying to figure out whether or not that love is caused by the antidepressant or something else entirely. But it was really well acted. All of the actors were incredible, but one to really watch out for is Taylor Russell from Bones and All, also known as the girlfriend of Harry Styles, although that is just a footnote in her long and incredible career. But she's a really wonderful young actress. Keep an eye out for her. So the show is now over, but if it comes to New York, which who knows, it might, try to check it out. The Effect by Lucy Preble. Wonderful. A little highbrow, a little lowbrow, Michael. Just how we like it. Have it no other way. All right. Well, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our coders are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.